members in this community like me that haven't even reached one decade yet. We're still in our first decade. Some people have joined the family and they're still in their first year together. Over all of these years, we have done life together and we've walked through a lot. We've mourned together. We can think of some of the times that we mourned together, like when we watched someone's family member walk away from following Christ, or we mourned together with a family that lost a newborn baby, or when a family member had someone in their own household commit suicide. We've mourned together. We've also served together. We've served together by visiting drug-addicted women who decided that they were going to stay sober through their pregnancy for the sake of the child within them. And we've visited those women in the hospital after they've given birth to their children. We've served together when we've sponsored a refugee family, when we collect clothes for the homeless and raise money for overseas projects. There are many ways that over the decades we've served together. Uh, We've also been bored together. We've listened to another sermon that didn't connect, or we listened to somebody tell their story for the 1,000th time. Uh, We've visited that lady in her home who always forgets that we come and visit her, but we still go every single time. And as a church, we've argued together. We've argued over different theological positions. We've argued over approaches on how to do ministry. And of course, we've argued over our musical preferences. And as a church family, we've celebrated together. We've celebrated people's weddings, their baptisms, their anniversaries. We've celebrated the church mortgage burning. And we celebrate when we do things like carnivals or church picnics, as we did after the service last week. It's good to be part of a family, part of a church family, and it's particularly good to be part of a church family that doesn't see celebrating as a contradiction to loving Jesus. But it isn't always the way Christians are seen. It's why there are a plethora of jokes, like the one that says, why are Baptists against sex standing up? Because it might lead to dancing. Or how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? So we aren't always known as some of the people that have the most fun. But celebrating together and loving Jesus are not contradictions. The church has struggled with this in different times. In fact, the 18th century American theologian Jonathan Edwards made many life resolutions And one of his life resolutions was not to speak of anything that is a matter of laughter on the Lord's Day. Ideas like this caused the 19th century preacher and megachurch pastor Charles Spurgeon a lot of controversy. Because Spurgeon was known to use frequent humor 
in his sermons and would often get in trouble for it, once defending himself to a bunch of students that he was teaching about preaching, he said to those students, I'd rather hear people laugh in church than see them sleep in church. And if someone went into Spurgeon's office and looked around the books in Spurgeon's library, they could see that humor was a big part of Spurgeon's life. What Spurgeon actually did is Spurgeon had a number of fake books in his library where he had imprinted on the spine of these books things like this, Aches and Pains by Ida Feltham, Over the Stream by Bridge, and Do It Again by Dunnett. Jonathan Edwards never kept books like that in his library. Today, the story that we're going to read in the Bible is a story of celebration. It's a story in which Jesus is part of the celebration. In fact, Jesus is even the one to make sure that the celebration doesn't end too quickly. John chapter 2. It's the story of the wedding at Canaan. And this is what we read. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Canaan in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told them, we have no more wine. Jesus' mother then went to Jesus and told him, we have no more wine. Dear woman, that is not our problem, Jesus replied. By the way, Children, youth, never speak to your mother this way. Um, yeah, anyway. Dear mother, dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars have been filled, he said, then dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. And so the servants followed Jesus' instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew where it had come from, he called the bridegroom over and said, a host always serves the best wine first. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Canaan in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is a wonderful story, but it's a story that often the point is missed. The point is often missed in this story because of the fact that wine is involved. And some, starting with the assumption that Jesus could not possibly have remained sinless and have made wine, have wasted many trees on diatribes trying to make the point that this story is about Jesus not really making wine. Ironically, this usually comes from the same group of people that say that we should always take the Bible literally. 
And then they go on and try to have all kinds of proofs that when Jesus made wine, he didn't really make wine. Arguments come along like this, and some will say, well, the water really remained water. Jesus simply served it under the name of wine in a spirit of good-humored playfulness. So obviously those people are okay with Jesus having practical jokes, but uh, are not okay with Jesus making wine. Others have said, wanting to keep the miraculous in the story, say that Jesus never really turned water into wine, but just really awesome Welch's grape juice. The problem with these interpretations is that they're not true to the first century culture. Or to the story that we're reading. How are we take, to take the words of the master of ceremonies who after tasted the wine that Jesus had made said, you've kept the best for last, Mwah! and you've had the most expensive for now. Why would he have said that? Was he in on the joke? Was he a terrible wine tester? And why was Welch's grape juice so expensive in Jesus' day? And even if the master of ceremonies was either a jokester or an idiot, would people at the party have been fooled? Would people at the party have drunk it and said, Wow, I'm really drinking the water from which people wash their hands from. But <laughs> Jesus, he's sure a funny guy, making me think that this is wine. Boy, he knows how to keep the party going. All of this sounds rather forced. A forced attempt to make the Bible appeal to our comfort level. The fact is, in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, and true to the story, even when the author says that most times people keep the cheaper wine for later. Why? Because by that time in the party, people are a little bit inebriated, and so it doesn't matter very much. Everything in the story and the culture says that Jesus made real wine. The question for the story is not really about that. And it says more about us than about the story when we lose too much time on that topic. The story is, and the question we need to be asking ourselves is, why did Jesus turn water into wine? During the Middle Ages, the church used four categories of biblical interpretation. It was a fourfold approach which originated with Bible teachers very early on in the church in the first few centuries. What they would do is they would look at a passage of Scripture and they would say there are four levels of meaning in every passage of Scripture. There's a literal meaning, there's a moral meaning, there's a typological meaning, and there's an anagogical meaning. These can actually be very helpful categories for us in understanding some of the different layers within a text, as long as our interpretation is true to the way the Bible is using the text. Sometimes we force upon Scripture things that aren't there. So, for instance, in the Middle Ages, they said that every passage has all four meanings to it. But the problem is, is that not all passages have all four meanings to it. And because they insisted on this, they ended up making some 
very strange interpretations of some passages, like saying that when you read the Song of Solomon and it talks about the woman's two breasts, that one breast represents the Old Testament and the other breast represents the New Testament. Or, or wait a minute, is it one breast represents the bread in communion and the other breast represents the wine in communion? Or, or, or no, maybe it's that one breast represents communion and the other breast represents baptism. Or does it mean on and on they went by trying to force every layer of interpretation on a text? This is similar to some of the questionable ideas read into texts today. When we insist that every text has to have a literal meaning. So, for instance, some scholars will take the passage where Jesus says, It is harder for the rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And they'll say that, well, in Jerusalem, there used to be a gate called the eye of the needle. And what Jesus was really talking about was the fact that this gate was really low, and so when you brought your camel to the gate, it had to get down on all its knees and sort of scooch through this eye of the needle. Rather than saying that what Jesus was talking about was the tiny little hole in a needle that you sew with. We could come up with lots of strange interpretations when we insist that everything in the Bible is literal, or when we insist that everything in the Bible has all four layers of meaning. So we always need to be asking ourselves, what is a passage of Scripture saying? But what is it saying when we read it in the context of everything else around it, the way the Bible is using it? So this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to apply the medieval fourfold method to the interpretation of this story and see what it says. See which ones work and which ones don't work. So the literal interpretation means the interpretation of the event in its historical purposes and context. So applied to today's story, it would mean that in actual history... Sometime around 30 AD, when Jesus was around 30 years of age, he attended a wedding at Canaan. At the wedding, they ran out of wine. Jesus' mom came to Jesus and told him that they ran out of wine. Uh, Jesus then told his mom that he didn't want to get involved, and he made some weird statement about it not being his time yet. And then Jesus seems to disregard the very thing that he said to his mother, and he went ahead and did a miraculous event and turned water into wine. And when the host tasted it, he said it was the best wine he'd ever tasted. That's the literal interpretation of the event, the historical event of what happened. The moral interpretation of an event means the interpretation of an event for ethical purposes. So, a moral interpretation of this story would approach it something like this. What is the moral of the story? They'd say, well, Jesus' presence at a wedding and his turning water into wine shows that God approves of marriage. Marriage was designed by God. God declares marriage to be good. Divorce is something that God hates. Sex within marriage is God's gift to be enjoyed. 
and children are a blessing. And by turning water into wine, Jesus shows us that God celebrates marriage as wine is often depicted in the Bible as a blessing. And it's associated with celebration. So, for instance, in Ecclesiastes, we read, A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry. In Psalm 104, it says, God makes wine that gladdens the heart of people. And so they'd say the moral understanding of this story is that Jesus is at a wedding. That means God approves weddings, and he also celebrates with people when they get married. Unfortunately, though this interpretation in regards to its theme biblically is true, all those things are true about what God thinks of marriage, trying to apply that to this story just doesn't work with the context. After everything that John has done thus far in the book of John, and then the things that John is going to do after this story, it doesn't make sense that John would just throw in a random story that says God likes marriage when it doesn't flow with anything else that's happening. This is one of the greatest dangers we have in our interpretation of the Bible, is to approach it kind of like Aesop's fables and to moralize the Bible. And when we do that, we can have the Bible come up with things that are just morals that we want to confirm. The moral of this story could just as easily be always plan ahead. Or maybe we could say the moral of this story is save the best for last. Or why not say that the moral of the story is always listen to your mother. In fact, some Catholics have used this story to encourage people to pray to Mary because it seems like Mary has some pull with Jesus. And so, pray to Mary, Mary seems to get Jesus to do things, and then you can get Jesus to do things for you. So we often have a danger when we look at stories and try to pull out morals from them. So in this four-fold medieval way of interpreting Scripture, the moral approach is the one in this story that is the most off the mark. So let's look at the third one, the typological The typological means the interpretation of the event as it connects the Old and the New Testament together. This typological is particularly the case regarding the events of how Christ's life, his events, his sayings, the things that he does, connects with the Old Testament. How are the Old Testament stories and symbols types of Christ? As we've been seeing in the book of John, John uses typology all over the place. In fact, the New Testament is full of typology. That's one thing that would enrich our reading of Scripture if we understood typology a lot more. And so we saw in John chapter 1 that the Old Testament tabernacle was a type of Christ. We saw in John chapter 1 that the Old Testament lambs for Levitical sacrifice were a type of Christ. That the substitutionary lamb for Isaac was a type of Christ. 
that the Exodus Passover lamb was a type of Christ. That the Holy Spirit anointing King David was another type of Christ. Going the other way, we also saw that Peter became a type of Abraham. Nathaniel became a type of Jacob or Israel. The story following the wedding is when Jesus goes into the temple and cleans the temple. And we see in that story that the temple becomes a type of Christ. So if this book of John is full of types all through chapter 1, and then after the wedding of Canaan, we see all these types of Christ following it. That is why it makes no sense for this story to simply be a moral tale about God liking weddings. It's too random. What we have to say is, what is John doing? John is showing Christ to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's showing all the pictures in the Old Testament and how Christ has come to fill them. And so what we need to ask ourselves is if this is what John is doing with everything that he's writing, he must also be doing it here with this story. That's what reading in context teaches us. That's why it's good to understand what's always around what we're reading and to never take a story completely isolated from everything else. Because of the context, typology is obviously going on. Add to this the fact that whenever Jesus does a miracle, we know that his miracles always point to something. Jesus never did miracles just for the sake of miracles. Jesus was never wanting to be known as simply a magician. Someone who does miracles, magic tricks. His miracles always point beyond themselves. In fact, his miracles themselves are like types. So we've got to be asking ourselves, what is the miracle pointing to? What is the type? What are the pictures being illustrated in the story. And so when we read the story with this in mind, we cannot help but notice something about the jars. It says in the story, in verse 6, that Jesus turned water into wine, and the water that he turned into wine was the water used for Jewish ceremonial washing. It wasn't just random water. The water, everything the water stood for, represented the Old Covenant. The water was used for ritual ceremonial washing. The water is the Old Testament. The water is there because of the law of Moses. We see how important it was for the Jews to uphold the Mosaic traditions. On another occasion, some of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, came to Jesus. And they said to Jesus in Matthew 15, Why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For your disciples ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before eating. It wasn't just because they were hygienic in their hand-washing. It was because this 
ritual of hand-washing represented everything that Moses stood for, and it was God who gave Moses the law. The ceremonial hand-washing, every single time they did it, was reminding themselves that they were connected to the God of Moses. Jesus comes along and doesn't just turn water into wine. He turns ceremonial, mosaic water into wine. And by doing so, Jesus is turning something old, the mosaic law, into something new. And not only is he turning something old into something new, he's actually making the old better. Wine is better than water. It's richer. Jesus has come along and is making the new better than the old. Now, you have to understand, in the culture, that's a pretty bold statement. You see, the Jews were a pretty special people. Everywhere around them, culture was steeped in the worship of many gods. All around them, culture was corrupt, greedy, licentious. We think there's sexual fluidity today. Just study Roman culture, and you'll see that we're just catching up to them. The sexual immorality and the sexual fluidity in the Roman times was rampant. The Jews stood out as the one people worshiping the one true God. And they did this by worshiping God through The law revealed to Moses, handed down to them. A law that by practicing it made them upright, holy, honorable, integral in the sight of God and the sight of one another. The Jews stood out from everyone else as that kind of people. And yet now Jesus comes along and says, I've come to make it better. Better? How can you come to make it better? We've already got the best. We've got the revealed word of God given to Moses. But this is precisely what Jesus is saying. And will illustrate again and again In John's gospel. See, ceremonial hand washing can only wash the outside of your body. It cannot wash hearts. It cannot cleanse us from our sin. It's merely a picture. It's merely a type It's merely an illustration of something that is so much better. And that is what Christ has come to do. To wash and to clean us from the inside. To clean our sinful nature. Ceremonial washing can't do that. 
I can only point to that. Ceremonial washing is not the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. And whenever we make the pictures into the real things, we miss what God's intent for us is. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says, The water provided for your purification as laid down by Jewish law and custom stands for the whole ancient order of Jewish ceremony, which Christ has now come to replace with something better. Christ came to replace the old covenant with a new covenant, a far superior covenant. A covenant described in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, this way. Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. If the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. This covenant will not look like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to that covenant. So I turned my back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And I will forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sins. When God speaks of a new covenant, the book of Hebrews says, it means he has made the first one obsolete. It is now out of date and will soon disappear. Jesus has turned water into wine. Do you see how much we miss when we only read the Bible moralistically? Reading stories of Jesus turning the water into wine at Canaan and trying to find out what's the moral of the story when the Bible is so much deeper. When we read it with an understanding of typology, when we read it and we see the connections of Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he's come to accomplish and how the Old Testament and the whole system was all leading up to Christ. In fact, when we take Jesus out of his Old Testament context, we end up making Jesus nothing more than some moralistic teacher or some New Age guru. Jesus comes alive when we put him into his historical Old Testament context. And we see how he puts the puzzle all together. Jesus has turned water into wine, turned the old covenant of water into a new covenant of wine. And how is wine seen in the Old Testament as I read from some of the other passages of Scripture? Wine is seen as a picture of celebration and blessing. Jesus has come as a blessing to the world. Well, the medieval church had one other approach to understanding Scripture, and that was the anagogical approach. The anagogical approach means the interpretation of events for their future purposes. 
how would this story, how would this story of the wedding of Canaan be understood when we look to future things? Things like heaven and hell, the last judgment, the new creation. This story here most well fits with the typological understanding of it, as well as the literal. It did happen in history. And then John is putting it into the context of understanding us with Christ. This one is a little bit more of a stretch to say that it's actually speaking of these things, but the pictures are there. And that is an anagogical approach to reading this passage of Scripture in some ways fits in very well with communion that we are going to be having today. So as we move towards communion, we'll remind it that Jesus took the cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink of it. This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And so we have a connection here of the wine that Jesus turned at the wedding, the water that Jesus turned into wine, and the connection of the wine being a picture of a new covenant, and now Jesus at the Last Supper holding up the cup of wine and saying, this represents my new covenant. The covenant of water is over. We're now entering into a covenant of wine. A covenant sealing us in Christ and doing what ceremonial washing cannot do. It's interesting when you study world religions, the profound change that Jesus made. You see, almost all world religions practice ceremonial washing. And they practice it again and again and again. Washing either of their hands before prayer, before they eat, washing in certain bodies or rivers of water that are supposedly holy. There's a ritual in most religions of continual washing. But as Christians, we are washed but once. It's why we don't baptize people again and again and again. Your baptism is once. It's because when you've been washed in Christ, it's complete. It's done. It is finished. Christ washes us and cleanses us from all of our sins. There's no more need for continual washing. There's no more need for practicing what only is a picture when the reality has happened. And we truly have been washed. And not by water, but we've been washed in his blood. 
We've been washed in his wine. And when the early church celebrated communion, they understood this to such depth that when they celebrated communion, they referred to it as a love feast. It was to remember Christ's once-for-all cleansing. So that every time they got together, they remembered, but we need to understand it in the Bible, remembering is always done to look forward. All throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Bible, whenever it talks about remembering, it was never to remember with a hope to go back. The biblical understanding of remembering was always to remember what God has done so we can march forward. And it was the same when they practiced communion. Remember, remember, do this in remembrance of me so that you can continue to move forward. And for the early church, the remembering of communion was a time of celebration. It was later in the church when communion sort of became a very uncommunion thing, an uncommunity thing. It became a very private, individual introspective, almost funeral, mournful type of service where you kind of sit there quietly, look internally, do a psychological exam and make sure you haven't committed any sins, tune out everybody around you, and it was, that was, it's completely anti-communion. The early church, communion was a celebration. It was a community thing. In fact, it was such a celebration that if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul had to chastise the church because sometimes their communion celebrations were getting a little out of hand and people were getting drunk. That would never happen here because you only have about a thimble full of grape juice. If you drank enough of them, you might have to go to the bathroom, but certainly no one's going to get drunk. Maybe there's something about understanding communion the way the first church did. As a celebration community event. That the water has been turned into wine. We are a new covenant people. We are a new people that's no longer based on Jew or Gentile, slave or free, men or women. We are a new people bound together by the wine of Jesus Christ. A wedding. Every time we eat together, we're reminded of a wedding. But not just looking back to the wedding of Canaan, but as all remembering in the Bible does, looking forward to a wedding when we one day will be united with Christ again. See, the Bible also refers to Jesus as our groom. We, the church, are his bride. And one day, the groom is going to come to receive her bride, and there is going to be a great wedding feast where the wine will flow abundantly and be better than any wine we have ever tasted. Revelation describes it like this and says, let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride 
has prepared herself for him. The wedding feast of the Lamb, remember? Already in John chapter 1, another one of the pictures of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And look what Revelation says. Be glad. Rejoice. Why? Because the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God has come. The one that John the Baptist said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. And even though a lamb in one sense meant a sacrifice, we also know that the lamb was going to rise from the dead and conquer sin and death and take away our sin forever so that we could be with him. And so it's a celebration of our union. That's why it's called communion. We have a common union. There are many things that we might not like about each other. But what makes us come together in common union is that it is Jesus who pulls us together. Nothing else. We can have varying political views. We can have varying sports teams that we like. We can have varying opinions on what car is the best car to drive. We can have varying opinions on how best to approach ministry or raise our kids or whatever else it is. But it's our common union in Christ that makes us Christians. That's what we celebrate every time we come together. See, at traditional Jewish wedding ceremonies, the bride and groom seal their marriage by drinking wine from the same cup. It's a picture of a common union. As we drink from the cup of Jesus' new covenant, we reenact a marriage vow with him. When we come together in communion and we take the cup we are reenacting what you see in the picture. A marriage to Christ. And when you are getting married, do you drink the cup? Oh, I'm such a sinner, so low as me. I guess I can receive this. Oh, no, it's a celebration. And when we think of the wedding feast of the Lamb, in case you have this in mind, that's what many of us in the Western world have in mind when we think of a wedding feast. I want to show you a picture of a Jewish wedding feast. That is a Jewish wedding feast. And Jesus and God in Scripture seems to like things Jewish. So if you need to prepare for the wedding feast of the Lamb, you're probably going to have to take some dance classes. You're probably going to have to learn how to lift some chairs with people on them and clap your hands and celebrate and drink some wine because I am under the impression, because the Bible's a very Jewish book, that when it talks about a wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast is probably going to be much more Jewish in the way it celebrates. That is what we get to look forward to. And so let us drink together the cup of Christ's wine and remember him by looking forward to the day that we, his bride, get to see our groom 
the one who changed water to wine, the one who took what was old and made it new, the one who didn't just wash us ceremonially, but washed us and cleansed us from the outside. The one who has come and says, I make all things new. He's the one who turns water into wine. We've got all eternity to celebrate what he's done. Now is a foretaste. Now we begin the celebration. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are your bride. We are your bride and we are the people that you have called. You have dressed us. You have clothed us in righteousness. You have saved us. You have set us apart to be your special bride. You have made us holy and pure and spotless without stain and you have promised to come back for us and to receive us Lord Jesus may we live as people who are getting married may we live with the anticipation of the wonderful wedding feast that we will have together with you Lord Jesus we pray that our lives will be an act of worship. That we may be a lover. So much in pursuit of you. That we are consumed by you. We love you. And we honor you. And we bow down before you. Amen. We are gathered here together to witness the marriage of Christ and his bride. Hung, you are standing in here representing Christ. And I'm going to ask you, as one who has given his life for his bride, the church, do you promise to make her holy and clean, washing her by bathing her in God's word, and to present her as a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, so that she will become holy and without fault. I do. And I'm going to ask not only Joanne, who represents the church, but I'm going to ask all of you to respond, who 
don't just represent the church. You are the church. Bride of Christ, the church. Do you promise to love Christ and to submit to him as the Lord of your life? Surrendering your life to him in everything and recognizing Christ as head and savior of the church. If so, say, I do. You may kiss the bride. <laughs>